Welcome to the Zion Art Podcast, dedicated to exploring the art and culture of Latter-day Saints through interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars. The podcast is presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. Today, is my, it is my great honor to have Annette Everett, a nationally award-winning sculptor whose historical and religious works have been shown at the American Women Artists Exhibition, the Springville Museum of Art's Spring Salon and Spiritual and Religious Shows, BYU Museum of Art, and the Church's International Exhibition. Just to name a few... Annette Everett's monuments of allegorical and historical figures can be found at universities, government memorials, and church sites. She is one of 90 artists invited to participate in the upcoming Certain Women Art Show, opening October 4th in Salt Lake City. We are so pleased to have you. Welcome, Annette Everett. Thank you. It is a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Now, I have seen many of your works. I don't think we have ever met in person, even though we're kind of buddies online on, on social media. Yes, and I may have rubbed elbows with you at a time or two in the middle of a big crowd at Anthony's for some events. Last year's certain women, probably. Well, it's certainly, I rarely get with, even even uh, people I've known for a long time, I rarely get the time to sit down with them one-on-one. And, yes. and we're doing this. Some people may wonder a little bit about the sound um, on this. I am, I am in the studio recording, and you are at your studio in St. George. Yes. Can you just describe your surroundings? This isn't video. And so they're they're going to I'm seeing some work around you. What what is your studio set up like? Yes. My studio is out behind my house. It's about 20 feet to my family room. And at night, about 10 or 11, my husband will call me from the family room saying, are you coming home today, dear? <laughs> but it's just down the hill from from uh, where I live, and it's cool and quiet and uh, a sanctuary and a workshop and a um, classroom. So far away enough to be isolated, but close enough that if they really need you, they can come get you. Well, they know if I'm down here, they don't really need me. I'm in another zone entirely. And it's not like I have little children at home. I, I, I did for many years, but now it's just the two of us. And so it's, uh, it's a quiet sanctuary. It's ideal. So I want to talk about, um, about the timeline of your life and, and how you got where you are. But first, I want to ask a question, which is, um, sure. well, I want you to tell me about seeing the Pieta at the World's Fair in 1964. <laughs> that was pivotal to me. I was a child who liked to draw, and that becomes a talent because it interests you and you pursue it. I was a child who was invited by my family to go back to New York City for some convention with my dad's business, and we went to the World's Fair. And we went to the Catholic Pavilion, where they had the Pieta, not a a copy of it, but the real one. And it was in a very dark room. And they were introducing the very first people mover that was ever built. And you got onto this people mover with a crowd, and you moved in a circle all the way around the Pieta and out the other door. So you were not allowed to stop and linger and look. You were moved in a very solemn, quiet, 
awe-filled line around the Pieta, and it had um, spotlights on it. And so as you moved around it in this dark room with spotlights, it hit every highlight. And so it wasn't sparkling, but it was moving and vital and, and alive as you moved around it because the light was, was reflecting differently as you moved around it. It how, was very, very how, exciting. How old were you? 14. You're 14. Uh-huh. And, and I, I knew that I drew well. I knew that I would grow up and be an artist. And so I thought for a long, long time I was a painter. But that stayed in my mind. And when the time came, it was sculpture that, that called my name. I have a, 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 a small silly fact about the World's Fair in 1964 in the Pieta, which is it was such a... It was such a, a, a controversial thing for the Catholic Church to send one of their great treasures, the Pieta by Michelangelo, from St. Peter's to New York, <laughs> that they tasked two industrial designers with um, the safe transportation of it, and they invented the packing peanut. Wow. <laughs> the packing peanut and the people mover. That's and a the lot people of mover. So you have, and, and that is also the same fair that was a major turning point for church public affairs. They had the Mormon Pavilion where they had a giant two-scale facade of the Salt Lake Temple. They had, I think, 12,000 people a day visiting, and the church, knowing that the Pieta was going to be there, had mm-hmm. Torvaldsen's Christus in their space. It's interesting to me that the Pieta... Um, and well, it's interesting to me that you you uh, considered yourself such a drawer. What was the role of the arts in your family when you were young? Um, there 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 was not a history of of art in my personal family, but my maiden name is Whitaker, and so there was a family history. One of the great. One of the grandfathers helped Walt Disney establish the Disney Studios, and William Whitaker is a distant cousin, and I missed him my whole life. I was right where he was not, and when I got to where he was, he'd moved on, mm-hmm. and so I really missed being influenced by him, and I, I miss that. Um, but I come from that background, from that family. So what what were you drawing before, uh, when you were so young? Do you, were I mean, today uh, a lot of us who have kids who draw, they're drawing mm-hmm. Marvel characters and Pokemon. And uh, mm-hmm. what what was it that you, as a as as a young girl, were were picking of up course, on? I predate all of that, and I just remember being very young and drawing uh, whatever came to my imagination, of course. Um, I I had a mother who would read to us, and I remember drawing what she was reading. And when I got to be a reader myself, and I didn't need her to read to me, I had enough little brothers and sisters that she continued reading, and I continued drawing what she was reading to them about. And when I speak, I, I tell the kids that I talk to, who knew that a child who could draw would grow up and create monument sculptures? You know, where is the bridge? How does that happen? But it can and it does. That is a, it's an interesting question because I think very few people think, oh, I'm going to be a sculptor when I'm older because it is, there's so many 
barriers to entry to becoming a sculptor. It takes a different, it takes a kind of materialistic science and, and team um, working with foundries, work, and it's and it's there are fewer of them. There's uh, a, a different commercial atmosphere of, in being. You have different kinds of commissions and ways of making a living. So you said you thought you were going to be a painter. When you yeah. thought you were going to be a painter, who were yep. you looking at and saying, "I'm going to be like this painter"? Did you well, have a person? That was the frustrating part because I would look at painters and. You know, I, I ugh, no names come to mind, but I was never satisfied with my painting. I was, I, I drew well. I, I enjoyed underpainting, uh, but by the time I got to a finished painting, I'd put it away and say, nope, that's not it. Try again. And I was, you know, I was winning awards. I was doing the work. Um, keep in mind too that when I got married, as a as a child, um, I put away art when the babies started coming. I admire these mothers who are out there doing art because I only had so much creative energy and it went to raising kids. And so for 20 years, I didn't do art. How, um, far, how far were you along in your artistic education before you got married and started having two, kids? Two years at BYU, one year at the University of Utah with Alvin Gittins, which was a highlight. And then for, those who don't, for those who don't know Alvin Gittins, he was one of the, the preeminent yes. uh, 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 portraitists in the United States. He uh, was a major influential figure, um, not just here locally, but but nationally, doing Supreme yes. Court justices, doing um, governors, um, yeah. uh, major figures throughout business, and and he is he has uh, started an entire school of figurative art that that could that deserves right now a show, I believe. But if that, you, what a great idea! It would be well, great. I I did I missed his class. And so I got brave and I went in and I got an appointment to talk to him, took a portfolio. He glanced through the portfolio and said, he looked up, well, initially he said, I don't do little Mormon housewives. Oh my gosh. And I went, okay, well, I'll come on, you know, and he said, come Tuesday, show me your portfolio. He said that before. And so I, I gave him my portfolio to look through, and he looked up, and he says, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 until 7. And I said, thank you. Good for and, you. <laughs> you, showed, you showed him. And, and After that comment. I guess you know, that's about as humble as he would get, right? He wouldn't say I was wrong. He would just say come. Yeah, he didn't say anything about the work. He just said come. And so I was very gratified. Well, well, that, that begs an interesting question, which is you're at BYU and you're studying for two years, which, yeah. number one, um, being a woman and studying at, at higher education at that time would have made you a minority, I imagine. But then number two, you're in art classes on top yeah. of that, which probably further limits the number of women who are involved. Who is Who's at BYU? And what, what years were, were it around? And, and do you remember anybody who was in your class at the time? At that time, I was 18. I was a child, and I was taking all my foundation classes. Yeah. Uh, the one teacher that stands out that I, uh, I feel very blessed is um, Trevor Southey. And Trevor Southey was teaching some kind of a beginning 
life drawing, uh, anatomy, and he would group us all together around the model, and he would stride around the outside perimeter of the room, and he would shout, he'd say, make a splendiferous crash, and we'd be all up on our, you know, up on our drawings, and we'd be shaking in our boots saying is this right am I doing it right <laughs> and he would make us stand back and get brave and and uh, so I still tell myself stand back make a splendiferous crash <laughs> he was South African and uh, yes, he oh wait, wait no he was from Rhodesia not South Africa okay he was and, from Africa and and he, and he he uh he was quite a personality I I got to meet him in his older years and talk with him several times and even then he was energetic. I can't imagine what he would have been like as a younger man. Yeah. It was exciting and it was moving. It was. He, you, why, why the move to the University of Utah? I got married and my husband was going up there to get a graduate degree. And so I went with him. So 20 years. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that for a lot of people, that is a common experience. And there is anxiety and guilt and all, all kinds of concerns that I think are particular to women artists of this culture who are often highly trained and talented. And because they've, they, they, the, 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 uh, the, the majority of the work of, of, of raising a family often falls on them. Yes. They have to set aside their, the development, expression of, or, or of their own talents, often in favor of very practical things that have to be taken care of. How do you, how do you speak to, to women artists about this? I, I, first of all, I feel like I'm behind, you know, like I'm catching up. I'm, I've lost 20 years, but it was a priority that was important to me, and I would probably do it again. Um, that's why I admire these young women who, who can do art and raise a family. It's amazing to me that they can do that. Um, but I like to encourage people and let them know that it's not going to go away, that the desire will still be there, the talent and the ability will still be there, and um, there's time to do it all but probably sequentially rather than all at the same time, at least for me. Um, I, I feel like I can encourage, you know, returning students and, and older artists that, yes, it, your time is not lost. It's not, it's not uh, lost. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder about some of the assumptions we make about what it takes to become an artist or, or in, any, in any endeavor that we have. I... I think about the kinds of things I was creating and writing and doing in my 20s and throughout my 30s, and yeah. I don't think they were that great. And, and I kind of wonder if, if when you do come back to it with a great yeah. deal more life experience, yes. all of this concern that we have about the technical ability... Yes. Um, is sometimes it's an, a technical ability is often overrated in my opinion uh, and, and can be caught up on. Yeah, I totally agree, and that's what I teach when I go out is that um, you you still have that basic ability. Um, I remember the first day I came home 
My first class, Dixie College, moved to St. George from Cincinnati, Ohio, decided I wanted to try to get back into art, went to class, Del Parson, came home and told my kids, I, I just was told by all these 18 to 21 year olds that intimidated me because they're on the track, you know, right. that I rock kids. I still rock, you know, you still got it. But now what you bring to it is what you say. You have life experience, you have um, um, observations and, and opportunities that, that they haven't create they don't they're not old enough yet they're still gathering and so yeah yeah it's it's valuable bring all of that with you i want to talk about a work that you did that uh that that really struck me when i saw it at the interpretation thereof which was held by byu was it 2017 18 i yes. have a hard time it's it's a yeah. and and this was curated um, by by uh, Ashley Whitaker, who's a friend we've had on the podcast before, and who's a remarkable. I and I claim her as a cousin. Just saying. Do you? She is a yeah. she is a remarkable um, influence, and she's she's a BYU the over religious heart. You did a work titled Mary and Martha that has um, two figures back to back. I'm going to let you describe it, but before before you do. Um, I have to get kind of wonky art historical for a second about one of the things that I love about it. Um, okay. This is where I get the, I, I'm the host of the show, so I get to be selfish for a moment. <laughs> well, I, I love it. I think that one of the things I really enjoy about um, art, um, what, I, what, what sticks out to me when I see a work of art, um, is when it says something new about a subject that has been depicted so many times over the history of art. It's not always the original subject that interests me. It's an it's an unoriginal subject done in an original way. And it, it's Dave, Michelangelo's David had been done how many hundreds or thousands of times before he did it. He comes up with a new way of, of looking at it. I feel like you have taken this work that I have seen thousands of depictions of Mary and Martha. I have never seen anything like yours. It communicates so much, so quickly. It is just, it's exactly the kind of thing that, 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 that takes an old, that, that, that takes an old subject and, and, and makes you see it with fresh eyes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very flattering. Um, and, and the story is familiar to all of us, Mary and Martha. And I was a brand new State Relief Society president, scared to death, shaking in my boots, taking some training in Salt Lake, and they mentioned Mary and Martha. And into my mind literally comes this um, visualization. I have always had the opinion that we are both Mary and Martha. You cannot separate them. If you separate them, somebody's either hungry and angry or they're depressed and, you know, we're both Mary and Martha, men and women, both. And uh, so into my mind comes this visualization of Mary and Martha tied together through their skirts and through movement, but one is looking up and she has her scriptures in her hands because that's how we 
approach the Lord. That's how we sit at his feet. And one is looking down at the earth and her arms are filled with her chores and her responsibilities. One is focused down, one is focused up, and yet they are tied together with this swirl of skirts. And um, I wanted to show the idea that we are both and we're not separated. You don't, every woman I've ever talked to, 100% think that they are Martha, but they yearn to have Mary experiences. Well, it takes Martha preparation. It takes Martha work in order to create a time and a place, an atmosphere, the desire to have a Mary experience. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to show that. Did you uh, walk me through from conception to, to the final work? how you approached this did did uh, did you have the image in your head entirely at first as it ends up now did you start with a with with clay and a maquette or did you start with drawing how do you begin um at the training i flipped to the back of my notebook and drew it um, Mary looking up, Martha looking down, back to back. And then I went right back to my training and didn't give it another thought until the four-hour drive home to St. George from Salt Lake. And that was the time that I put it together in my mind. And so I got back to the studio and I said, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna, I better. And so I began with a maquette size. It's 21 and a half, almost 22 inches. And I put it together in clay and did a lot of you know, uh, imagination on, on this, um, cast it in bronze um, and submitted it to my first national show, which was American Women Artists. And um, I, it was accepted. I was shocked. This is like the third little piece that I ever did in my life. And so I went to their awards. It was in Santa Fe, maybe down there, and in Arizona somewhere. And it was the awards show, and everybody, you know, first place in oil, and first place in watercolor, second, third, all of those. And I'm clapping for everybody. Um, uh, first place in sculpture went to somebody and second, and then they called my name as best of show. And when I came up to accept, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm, and this is a group of women who are not spiritual minded. They're not LDS. And they talked about how this piece spoke to women generally, that it's always a balance between our creative self and our higher-minded self and our responsibilities that, that call us away every day. And so they, they approached it in a little more, um, less spiritual way, more, uh, you know, daily work and creativity and spirituality. Um, but that gave me the courage then to come home and decide that I wanted to do it larger. And so I did a 40-inch piece, it's half-life size, and Springville Art Museum bought one, and the LDS Church bought one, and, and so it's out there. Um, but that gave me the encouragement to um, take my vision 
And um, this is, you know, I, we have things to say. I encourage artists everywhere simply because what they have to say is different from what I have to say. And, and it all needs to be heard. It needs to be created and out there. So something I didn't ask you about, I'd be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't, is how did you make the move from painting to sculpture? Um, I, I live in St. George, Eldine Trueblood lives in St. George, and I was sharing a little studio space with her. Um, we had met along the way just because artists meet each other when you're in the same community. And she was going to do a little workshop, and I said, Eldine, I know I can do this. I, I come from a lot of drawing background and life drawing and anatomy, and I come from, you know, art background. I know I can do this. And she said, well, come take this workshop. And I, and I did, and I did a little bust of a child, which was pretty, you know, not wonderful, but it was a good start. And then she started pulling me in on her project. She had um, two or three big monuments and a couple of them I designed and they were her her contacts and her clients that my I was able to influence and design for her and and then create these big monuments um Often people have a difficult time moving from a two-dimensional um, depiction of things, which you have to make all kinds of choices that trick the eye into feeling like it's three-dimensional, to actually working in three-dimension and giving, and giving up the two-dimensional tricks. Yeah, we call it a big lie because because as a painter, you're trying to show distance and you know shape and form and you know all the things that come with painting. You you are um, you're replicating the tricks to figure out how to do that. And with sculpture, you don't have color. You don't have you you only have form, value, um, shapes. Those kinds of it's a different thing. Yeah. Did, did you find that it was um, it was it, it, it was it was almost like finding oh this works for me and I didn't know this would work for me or was it boy I have to st I have to learn everything again? No 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 it was it was a relief I I kind of exhaled like oh uh, yeah. So and I want I want to get back to Mary and Martha. You I feel it, like. I, I want the wonky skips that you stepped. You come back, you you go to you, you go on a drive for four hours to St. George. Do yeah. you usually have to have a rumination period before you work on something? Or does it do, do you have to isolate yourself in a similar way? I think that there's a lot of thought that goes into a piece before you actually create that piece. I was looking at Rose Daytalk doll on Facebook last night. Mm -hmm. She has just outlined a little sketch for a piece that she's doing that she has had in her head for 30 years. And she showed three little sketches that led up to this final sketch that now is probably going to be the one that she will do. But I identified with that very closely. I, I work on six, eight, ten things at a time simply because they're in various stages of pondering and figuring out. And there's a lot of things that I take to almost finish, but it's going to sit in clay until it's right. And you're um, fine with that? You're, you've, you've, yeah. you, is that something you've always been fine with or is that something you've learned to say, I don't have to finish everything? 
I, I, I don't know any other way. It's just simply the way I do. Um, the piece that's going to be in Certain Women this year, um, her name is Here's My Heart, Oh Take and Seal It. That's her name. And she began as etude, and in musical terms, an etude is a study. And she sat on my shelf for three years, four years, long time, because I was studying what happens to the shoulder girdle around your neck, what happens if you assume a radical gesture. Your head is turned, your sh which forces one shoulder up, you know, there's there's some physiological things going on there that I wanted to explore. And you and do you do show quite. I'm looking at it now. You do a three quarters bust, and it 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 incorporates a great deal of her anatomy, and so you're able to capture movement mm -hmm. that you normally wouldn't in a three quarters bust, even. At least that's how it appears yeah. to me. Yeah, and it started it started as a study. Um, what happens if you your head is turned that far? In order to have that graceful look to your neck, well, what happens to the shoulder? Well, it's got to accommodate it. And so, and she began just head and shoulders um, and sat for a long time while I studied her, and she was wrong, you know, for a long time. <laughs> you talk about her almost as if she's an individual. You say she because you have, I mean, is, do, you, do you see these works of art as, as, as almost being people that you? I guess I do. They take on, Mary and Martha are very definitely their own person and have taken on a life that is outside of me, yes. Once I have said what I can say, um, the art is still mine, but it's, but it's like your child. You push it out into the world, hmm. and it, it creates its own path, and it becomes its own thing. So when you, when you do a work, you sketch it out, uh, you... You uh, bring in uh, the clay and you create a, a, a maquette. Do you uh, do you bring in models to pose for you? Um, sometimes I work primarily from proportion, um, and I if it's if it if the proportion is wrong, the piece is wrong. I look at pieces, and if if it's if it's not right proportionally. It, it doesn't work for me. And so i that's the way that I start with proportion. But then I will go, well, what happens to that arm when you turn it that way? And so I will bring some, some artists. I, yes, I have worked from um, models. I studied and trained from models. Um, but it's usually after I have the concept and after I have the idea that I'm working on. Hmm. That's, in, that's interesting because I think that um, there is so much uh, conversation today in this, this, this world of figurative art that has been emerging over the past 20 years and a, a very muscular working from life that people feel yeah. like is, is, is a, a, a kind of canonical doctrine that everyone has to follow without realizing that much of academic training throughout the history of art from the Renaissance onward was about design first yeah. and and imagination first yeah. and 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 uh, composition of a work yeah. almost twisting bodies in unrealistic ways 
that they then made look it made look as if they were realistic. Yep. So, do you find yourself when you are teaching um, artists or working with people that that um, you you come at it with a different approach than most? I do I guess I do. You know, you do what you do. Um, it's got to be right proportionally. The muscles have got to be correct. All of that has to be right. But before all of that comes the concept. I have a story. I have a thought. I have something that I want to tell. Um, either I am telling something that is important to me or I am learning something that is important to me. And then the sculpture will come out of, come out of that. I want to ask you about uh, the work Gratitude, which is in the church competition. Um, first, can you describe it for us? Yes, it is a group of one, two, three, four women. Three of them are bent over quite acutely. They're bent over and they're harvesting the grain around their feet and they are focused down and they look like peasants. And there is one woman who is standing up. She's looking at the sky. She's got her, her apron full of grain, wheat or, or whatever that grain is. And she has stopped and um, stopped to give thanks. Stopped to give thanks. And that piece came from uh, the Chicago Institute of Art. That there is a painting there, and it's Jules Breton, and it's called The Song of the Lark. And it is a peasant girl, and she's standing in the field. It's either dawn or dusk. And she is transfixed, and high above her head in the sky is a tiny little bird. And she has, it has lifted her out of her drudgery. Her, her life is peasant work from, from dark until dark. And that moment she hears the song of a lark and she's transfixed by it. And I, I put that together in my mind with the idea of the lepers who, who there was one who returned to give thanks to the Savior after he healed the 10 lepers. And I think that we're all caught every day with the busyness and the demands of this world and this life. And if we can take that moment, if we can be reminded, if it takes the song of the lark or whatever it takes to simply stop and give thanks and, and uh, take ourselves out of our dailiness. Jules Breton is one of my favorite artists. And he was, he was very influenced by... Um, Jean, uh, uh, Jean-Francois Millet, who also yeah. did, who did works of the gleaners, and and whereas Millet was was looking at these peasants often in ways of of uh, of, of of not not always seeing them as individuals or or, or even as something that was a positive thing. It was often the the terrible drudgery. Breton has an optimism, and a and a and a kind of um, joy, and and uh, and beauty rather than ugliness that he pulls out of his figures. When yes. I saw when I saw your your work, one of the things that t- to me is so interesting about this, I immediately thought of Breton and and Millet, but because they're in color you're often affected by the color of what they've done and chosen. 
and and uh, Malay and Breton have very different ways of using color. Seeing it without color and just seeing the extreme movements of these figures really had a different effect on me. I was so struck by uh. by the 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 very strong horizontal of all of the women on yes. one level and yeah. her on this vertical rising st- straight through like a rocket out of yeah. out of them and it it echoes a sense of hope like she is lifted above these clouds and the looking at the ground they are so close to the ground it just it to me it communicated even more than the painting could have that coming out of the drudgery and labor for a moment and rising above it it felt like somebody was taking a breath and i i that to me it was it was a it's a revelation to see a, 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 it's not that you didn't do the repeat what they did, but it's in the same family of movements of what they were doing. But to have it in sculpture changed it entirely for me. That's so amazing. It is amazing. This, this is why we make art because, you know, as, as an artist, and you know this, this is what we seek. This is what we want. What, what do people bring to it? You brought to it all of your experience and ex- and then you experience this sculpture on a on a whole new level and I'm thrilled. And, and it's an art is a long conversation. It's a long conversation between generations, between artists, between everyday people and 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 this just struck all the chords for me. I do have a question. I have two questions about it that are 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 technical, which is on one level I want to know how you chose the scale. I don't have, I don't, I, I, I kind of wonder sometimes when you're a monumental sculpture, sculptor, you're done, done monuments, and this is a work that could very well be a monument. How do you go about saying, I'm going to make it this size? Well, it usually depends on uh, mundane things like the materials that I have and, and uh, and then I begin to work proportionally. Okay, I can do this, this big and this wide and I've got room and I've got, you know, and then you begin to divide it. People who sit in math classes in junior high and say, will I ever need this? The answer is yes, you will always need this. Even if you're an artist, you're gonna grow up and need math, you're gonna need it. <laughs> and so that's, the decisions are made simply on an, unconscious level it's it's yeah. what you have and and how you're you're starting it and and often you're chopping things back or, or you're hot gluing things together and and uh it's very fluid it, it evolves so a, a couple technical a couple more technical questions i thought i just had one more but i've got two more which mm-hmm. is um you know, a lot of artists, especially those who study with portraitists, who are figurative artists, they learn a certain set of skills which has to do with isolating figures. But doing a multifigural work is often a skill that that is not taught in school. You don't have time to teach it. There are rarely people who do multifigural work. Gittins didn't do it very often. There are a few pieces I can think of that he did that were exceptional. But he often did... Um, he often did portraits more, uh, and isolated, maybe sometimes pairs. Um, same thing with Trevor Southie. Trevor Southie, he did a lot of very un, um, um, pieces that were, if he did multi-figures, they often weren't reliant on gravity or backgrounds that were realistic because he was, he was very um, 
um, uh, um, imaginative in the way that the figures fit together. How did you make the leap to multi-figures? And when in your I don't your know if, if it was thought through. I don't think it was consciously done. I just knew I had a story to tell and this is the way I wanted to tell it. And so you simply figure it out. Um, initially, I work from armature, which is wire, to styrofoam, which I use hot glue and styrofoam, which will fill out the bulk, uh, the thick parts, and you carve that with a hot knife, and, and uh, you begin to get an approximation of what you want, but it was the it was the story that drives it. It wasn't a conscious decision about whether, you know, I needed all those people in order to tell her story. So you weren't. I mean, I I guess what I'm I'm projecting on you is the the uh, the concerns of other artists that I've talked to, where they think, oh no, multifigural, I got how am I going to do this, and 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 that isn't part of your internal dialogue. You just think story, gonna go with, gonna make it happen. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm doing a bas relief right now, which is the great plan of happiness, and it's quite large, and it will have many figures, but in in a bas relief, not in full round. Um, but it's the story; it's the story that has to be told. Hmm. So when and here's a here's another question about this piece. I want to hear about the ball relief too. But before we leave this piece, gratitude of yeah. of the women who are are, are gathering um, the wheat. Um, I I think that a lot of beginning sculptors don't realize um, that they can make one thing in clay, but then when it has to be cast, they have to deal with things like undercuts, and they have to deal with how things are put together. This piece would seem to me to be a technical challenge for someone to cast. Yeah. How how is how um how much have you how was what was that like as as an artist learning to work with a foundry and with the people casting it and and what is the who's the foundry that you work with or do you work with multiple foundries? Well, I I learned first about all this stuff from Eldine Trueblood about undercutting and and things like that. The foundry that I use two foundries. One is in Lehigh and it's Metal Arts. One is in Springdale, Springville. I get those. I'm not from Utah. I get those two mixed up. You're from you're from Oregon originally, right? I'm from Washington. Washington. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to 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 uh, to to put on you Oregon. That's all right. And we raised our family in Cincinnati. And so oh. I get those two cities up, up by Mapleton, up, you know. Are we talking up, about Bear Bronze? Bear yes. Bronze. You know, who I, I love. These people are, are great. And I bring my little pieces in and I rely on them to know what to do and they do it. Do, they, do you often find that they, uh, they, they change things or, the, or that you have to change things in order to meet the process? No, I've never had that happen. I've worked with the people at Bear Bronze quite a bit over the years with contemporary artists and with older pieces. And there are so yeah. many considerations, I think, when you're, not, when you're in the creative process, you don't always have the time to think about um, the very final technical, this is how we have to pour the bronze and piece it together in order to make the work. And they are magicians, when they're I, doing these kinds of things. I've never had them say, this has to be different or this has to be fixed. I've never had them do that. I think that's exceptional. And I also think that um, it's 
it's something that painters don't often have to think of when they're oh. doing things. And yeah. and I think when you're a sculptor, you have you have limitations, which are often opportunities. So I don't I don't mean it as a negative thing, but you have limitations that are technical that. Um, that, that I think are interesting to explore. I want to hear about ball relief that you're doing. Ball relief is its own thing. Yes, um, it is. And, and uh, there are artists who never venture out of, of uh, full relief to do ball relief, and there are people who, who specialize in ball relief who never do anything else because it is a universe in and of itself. Tell yes. me about choosing to do ball relief. Um, I... I was invited many years ago by Vern Swanson to submit some ideas for the Rome Temple. Remember? For, for those who don't know Vern Swanson, he's the former director of the Springville Museum of Art. He was a mentor to me. He did his PhD um, at the Courtauld in London, and he focused on. Uh, he he also worked at a foundry as a young man. Yeah, yeah. And at one point, the church put out an invitation to a limited number of artists to submit ideas for the Rome Temple. They were so inundated with so many um, other artists. Everybody wanted to get in on this awesome opportunity that they withdrew the invitation very quickly and said, we're going to go with some traditional, beautiful pieces, and we know what they've put in there, and we all approve. We think it's wonderful. But the piece that I did for them, or the concept, was this bas-relief, and it's very tall. It's five feet at least, and it has a Gothic arch at the top, which is the invitation, of course, to raise your eyes and your attention to the Lord. And then it is um, a circular experience beginning and ending with the Savior. And he's standing in a very cosmic, you know, centered at the top. And then we come through Adam and Eve and we're born into this world through the priesthood role of women. We are born um, with the help of men, of course, we have an, an earthly experience and then through the priesthood role of men and the, um, uh, the, the experiences that we have through baptism and making covenants and, and going through the temple, then we're reunited back into the presence of the Lord. And so it's a circular experience beginning and ending with the Lord. And that's what I'm portraying on this ball really. I and have not, I, I haven't, uh, I, I don't have an image of it in front of me. Is there, yeah. when are you going to be able to show this publicly? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It'll probably go into the church invitation or the church uh um, competition in a year or two. It's been sitting here since before um, the Rome Temple was built. And so my grandkids come in and go straight for it with tools and they want to help. And so it's been through many, many uh, evolutions, but it's going to get done here. Are there going to be other Whitakers coming, artists coming through your, uh, your family? Yes, I'm watching them. I'm watching them. They all have ability. Um, I encourage them to try to find a different way, a better way to support a family, because it's a heck of a way to try to support a family. Um, but art and art training will forever and always enhance and make better whatever it is that you choose to do. 
And so, yeah, they've got ability. Uh, sculpture, maybe more than any other medium, is a team sport. Yeah. Uh, who's on, are, are they becoming members of the team? Uh, yes, my five-year-old is very... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they've got a lot, they exhibit a lot of ability, whether or not they stay with it and do something with it. I don't know. I've got one granddaughter who, in today's world, it is animation, which, uh, you know, appeals to these children. And she has been chosen out at her school to take special classes. And so she's very excited about that. And so we're, we're watching. Interesting. Well, yeah. I hope we get to interview them at some point. Would that be great? <laughs> it would be great. Well, I, I want to thank you for spending the, the, the time and talking with us out of your schedule. I can see projects all around you as we talk. Are uh, we going to see you um, up here for the Certain Women Art Show when it happens? Yes, I will be there, and I will come and greet you. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, th well thank, you. thank you for your time today. It has been an honor and, and a real privilege to hear your story. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. It's not nearly as scary as I thought it would be. Oh, I, it's not scary. <laughs> At least I hope it's not. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't. Well, I would like to thank Annette Everett for joining us. You can see more of Annette's work on her website, annette-everett.com. And of course, at the Certain Women Art Show, which is opening October 4th. For more details on events and locations of the Certain Women Art Show, visit certainwomenartshow.com. To see images of the works we talked about today and to access our archive of interviews, visit Zion Art Society's website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. I am Micah Christensen, and thank you for joining us.